Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor at Palladium Magazine. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Viren Murthy. Viren is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're going to be discussing Japanese and Chinese political thought, uh, specifically to do with world orders, as some of the interesting convergences we're seeing from the 20th century, or between the 20th century and today, and what we can learn from them. So welcome to the podcast, Viren. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit more about your work and background? Sure. Thank you. So... Uh, I teach uh, transnational Asian history at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and uh, I primarily focus on intellectual history. So I focus primarily on China, Japan, and 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 India to some extent. And yes, I'm interested in like political thought um, issues of say connected to Marxism and uh, and also post-colonialism. Yeah. So the way that I first became aware of your work was uh, a mutual acquaintance of ours uh, invited me to a talk you were giving on the concept of Tianxia. So uh, for people in our audience who haven't come across it before, Tianxia, Chinese word, uh, we roughly translated into all under heaven, uh, you know, the world sort of it today has connotations that are less metaphysical, maybe, but more political. And specifically, uh, the word Tanxia is being used among Chinese intellectuals thinking about the idea of a new world order, or a Sinocentric, a Chinese-centric world order. Uh, at Palladium, we've previously published about Zhang Shigong, um, the Chinese Schmidt translator who has used that concept. You, you, uh, you know, kind of, you've looked at this concept, I think you've broken it down in interesting ways, gone into its background. Could you basically tell us a bit about what do you find interesting about the discussions right now around Tianxia, about how the concept is being used, and, and how substantial do you think uh, the discourse behind it is? You know, there's something like what, what we can call a kind of global turn in, um, in Chinese discourse. That if you look at, say, the 1990s, for example, you have already certain books that are sort of coming out in China. That the one that's really famous uh, called, um, I think, China Can Say No, for example, right? I don't, I don't know if you've heard of this, but, but in any case, yeah, so that, so that text uh, is one that says, you know, China doesn't want to rule, to rule anybody. You know, China just wants to govern itself. The US can't govern anybody and Japan maybe can't even govern itself, right? I mean, that which is sort of ironic because um, the book, China Can Say No, is actually a response to a Japanese book called Japan Can Say No, which came out in 1989 after the bubble and so on. But in that case, what you see is much more, you don't see that kind of, any kind of idea of of an outward expansion of, of, of China or Chinese power. But in the 2000s, you have uh, a, a different kind of, uh, kind of discourse that emerges uh, in a book that, that you may all, also have heard of, written by some of the same authors uh, who wrote China Can Say No, is, uh, and it's called uh, China Unhappy. Could you just list some of the authors involved with those projects? So yeah, so one is, uh, name is Song Qiang, uh, it's kind of a manifesto. This is China can say no. Sun Qiang, Zhang Zhang, Xiao Bian, Tang Zhengyu, uh, Gu Qingshan. So, I mean, these are all not... Yeah, these aren't academic names. So, what, what kind of background is this coming out of then? So, this um, is, is part of this kind of, um, you know, you could say it's a kind of Chinese nationalism is, is you know, to put it very simply. But it's, it's almost a kind of popular uh, nationalism. And so that's, where, that's why, you know, in the 90s, China Can Say No was a really quite a, quite a um, popular book. And China Unhappy uh, comes out later. And that is, uh, you know, by, I think it's around 2007 by some of the, the same authors. So what I wanted to say was uh, with, that, with that point is that then you're suddenly moving to a... Um, a phase where, where in China unhappy, they start talking about concepts such as Lebensraum and, you know, uh, you know, this kind of life space, you know, and sort of saying that there's a big problem and that China needs more space, that, that all of a sudden it's different. It's so, so the discourse you can already see is different 
from uh, you know in the uh, in in the China can say no argument, right? So and 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 my and I would contend that then the Tianxia theories that come up again around the same time, right? It's the the two thousands that they really become popular. Okay, so we've we've seen this rise in China of kind of a popular form of nationalism, one that plays out in the media. We have uh, kind of an academic version as well that we'll talk about later. But maybe, um, Viren, could you give us sort of an, an outline here of the the kinds of popular Chinese nationalisms that we're dealing with in this this kind of literature? So um, what I wanted to highlight um, was a shift from a popular nationalism that is much more China focused, right? And it's not really talking about the rest of the world to the 2000s when you get a much more of an outward kind of shift, right? Where you get more of an idea that, you know, well, maybe China should be playing uh, uh, more of a role in, in the rest of the world. Uh, and I think, and, and what I wanted to suggest is that these theories of Tianxia, where, you know, they're bringing back these ancient theories of Chinese sort of, you know, I don't know if we want to call it global governance because there was no real globe at that time, but world order or something like that. I mean, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's really in many ways very sort of interesting historically because you don't really have a world uh, in the, in that period either. I mean, you basically, all under heaven is all there is, and that's China. And then outside you have, you know, barbarians or whatever. But, but, you know, now we come in, now what's happened is they're bringing this theory in, you know, from maybe at least, you know, something like 2003, 2004, and then bringing Tianxia, this idea, this, this more uh, sort of traditional Confucian ideal in dialogue with uh, other people who talk about world order. Um, and, uh, and I think that that is really the, that, that, that there's a kind of, it sort of dovetails with new brand of nationalism where, where, you know, it's nationalism, but at the same time, it's also uh, a kind of internationalism and, and, and their intention with one another, because in some ways you say, well, some would say it's, yeah, it's a Chinese, China's Chinese based order. But the argument of course, is that when you really have Tianxia, there's, it's not Chinese anymore. Because to some extent, if you look at ancient China, when you had Tianxia, there wasn't a clear conception of, of China as opposed to another place, because that was all there is. China was equivalent to civilization. And so you have that kind. So now, so that, that's, I think, the, the, the point I wanted to make with respect to the shift in, uh, in nationalism, that you have a move much more to a, to a much more outward going um, nationalism. You know, on, on the other hand, it sounds similar in some ways to the the way that America, right, likes to talk about an international community, right? And it's almost uh, a joke in a sense, right? People generally know if, if if an American diplomat is at the UN or somewhere talking about the international community, what is meant is is the kind of American system of alliances around the world. And so, yes, in the one sense, it is you know it is a multi state alliance. But there is a clear pull at the center of the thing. And it seems like um, Tianjia, the way that it's being discussed today, at least in people like Jiang Shigong, you know, it's tied into the project of the Chinese party state. It seems to be sinocentric, maybe in an equivalent way where it is multi-state, but there is kind of a pull. Um, China's also obviously talked about, you know, the, this concept of one country, but many systems. One country presumably means something there. I, I wonder if you could maybe delve into that a bit. Like, how explicit is the the sinocentric element of this thing, and are is the Tianxia we're getting here actually the? You've kind of hinted here that it isn't the the full historical picture, or or maybe that there maybe you know historically maybe there was more than one idea of Tianxia. We are maybe getting certain ideas about it, but but not other ones. If you could kind of like talk a bit about that and, and that relationship. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the, the question, of course, of, of, um, of history is a little complex because um, in some sense, it can't be the historical order because the historical context is so different. I mean, you're talking about, you know, an, an, an order that in its ideal phase is perhaps, you know, something like, you know, thousand BC or something like that. I mean, so, so, so we're really, uh, you know, and yet, and yet, I mean, we should, 
note also that some of the Tenxia theorists, like there's a person named uh, Tong Dong Bai or Bai Tong Dong, um, who, who you could say, so, so, I mean, he wants to actually make the argument and he's not alone that if you really look at, you know, uh, ancient China, it has an interstate system that's very similar to our present because at that time, China wasn't united, right? And you had all these different countries and they were in competition with one another. And this is very similar to what we see today, right? And that was what they would want. That's what they want to argue. And so then China then is really just a symbol for something like civilization. That's maybe the country element here. Exactly, exactly. So, so this is where, I mean, and it's not just, it is, uh, I think Lucien Pai also made that argument, right? Or he made the famous statement, you know, China is a civilization pretending to be a nation. So that it's not, it's not really a nation in that sense. Uh, and, and, but, but, you know, this is definitely much more true for, you know, that period, the, you know, the period, what, what we sometimes call the Zhou dynasty or the, Sometimes the, the, the three dynasties were kind of the ideal and then even the warring states period, which is the period around Confucius and so on. So, so in that sense, it can't be the historical Tianxia. So I think what one really has to look at is also what is Tianxia doing rather than what it really was. I mean, to some extent, we have to go into some of the vague characteristics of what it was, something like an ideal, a world order, and all of this and so on. But I think what's much more interesting and perhaps more important is what it's doing in the various Tianxia theorists, right? And I'm most familiar, I mean, the talk I gave was on a person named Zhao Tingyang, who, who's sometimes considered to be, you know, on the, you know, maybe center left of the Tianxia people, and sometimes considered an idealist, if you want to use the international relations uh, talk. Where Zhang might be more the hard-headed realist. Yeah, he's maybe he might. Yeah, so so Zhang Shigong might be closer to a realist. I mean, after all, he's he's his early work, Zhang Shigong. I mean, he's a he's a professor at Beijing University, right? And he teaches law and constitutionalism, and so he's got he's got that side. Well, well, Zhao Tingyang is really a philosopher, and so you know he was you know writing on ideas like the the problem of time and things like that, right? Um, but of course, once you start writing about world order, then you have to really learn about some of these other things as well, right? So international relations theory, some, there is some realpolitik there in, 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 uh, in Jiao Yang as well. But, but what he's really talking about is, a, is an ideal world order. So I, I kind of want to put a bookmark in here for the moment. I think this has been a great setup. There's clearly a discourse, a kind of debate happening in China about the idea of world order. Uh, people are drawing on these old concepts. They're also drawing on newer concepts. You know, there, there are people coming from different backgrounds here with different ends in how they're engaging this project. We are going to come to this again a little later in the discussion. Right now, I want to kind of highlight one point about this, um, which, which we've discussed, Viren, which is that this is not the first time this has happened. And, you know, through the 20th century in, in, in Asia, there have been various attempts to kind of, especially as colonialism faded away um, or was overthrown, to come up with different ideas about a world order. And one of those attempts was Japan. And Japan, the early 20th century, obviously, was engaged in empire building. Uh, it was also engaged in a lot of the same kind of philosophical, legal, political reflection that we're seeing now. So maybe to start, could you lay out a bit of the context here, the, the, the points in Japanese history here that we're looking at in the early 20th century? What is going on in Japan intellectually that you kind of see convergences, similarities with here? Why is this comparison interesting to you? So the, the comparison is interesting and, of course, also to some extent problematic. So let me first say why I think it's interesting. So I think it's interesting because you have, starting from the 20s and 30s and then going into the Second World War in Japan, a number of thinkers, uh, and the, in, including, of course, the government, uh, that are really positing an idea of a new world order, but also an idea of Asian unity. And this is also, you know, eventually, of course, in the context of the, of the Second World War, but, but starting before that. There's also a critique of the West, you know, in, in by, by a number of thinkers. And, and some, you may have heard of um, 
what the the uh, Japanese government coming up with this idea of the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, right? Where you know that the various um, Asian countries, which was really the Japanese Empire, were going to unite and then create a new world order. And so I think the parallel is really the new world order, the new world order that is going to be um, better than the imperialist order of the West. Co-prosperity seer has uh, some pretty strong, you know, win-win relationships, uh, Belt and Road vibes to it, doesn't it? Yeah, so that that I think is where you get the the that's where that's where we have the parallel. I mean, so and I'm I'm interested in this period because in terms of intellectual history, because you really have in Japan, I think some of the most interesting thinkers coming out at this 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 period. You know, I've, I've mentioned to you, I mean, Miki Kiyoshi is one person who I, who I think is, is fairly interesting because he's associated with the Kyoto School. Um, some of you may have heard of the, the, the Kyoto School. There are, they are a group of philosophers who are, you know, influenced by, say, uh, German idealism, German, German philosophy. Hegelian thought here in particular, right? Yeah, Hegelian, but but um, but also like twentieth century, like someone like Heidegger is also quite 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 important for them. And then, but they're also drawing on traditional sources, so you know, like Buddhism or you know whatever said things that are that are Asian and Japanese. And then, and they use a lot of that to develop a critique of modernity on 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 many levels. Now, someone like Miki Kiyoshi is interesting uh, for another reason uh, because he's also. He starts out sort of as a Marxist. Mm-hmm. And, and could, could you give here maybe some of his just general biographical background here? Um, you know, what, what's his family background? Where is he coming from? How does he get into politics? I know, I know he dies in 1945 uh, and he, di- he actually dies in prison. He's born in 1897. And I wouldn't say he's direct. I mean, he's actually someone who who's who's ends up being a university professor. He's raised as a Pure Land Buddhist, right? So, so he's got that thing. But then he goes to, uh, I think, he goes to Germany in ni- around 1922, 1923, and he studies with both Heinrich Richert and then also Heidegger. And, that, and so this is where, I mean, it, it becomes quite different from, from someone like Zhao Tingyang. There's also a kind of Western, I think, influence on, on Zhao Tingyang, but, it's, but that's another story. But in any case, so then so Miki comes back uh, maybe around, um, you know, 24, 25. Uh, he, at that time, he's a Marxist, right? And he's, he's, he's also reading people like Lukács and, and, you know, Lukács, there's that critique of modernity. And then, but then by the late 30s, he's then getting closer to the government. And so this is what, you know, the, the phenomena that one um, notes in Japanese history, which is called Tenko, right? Which is... You, the move from from left to right, where, and where right in this context is, I guess, the the project of Japanese Empire. Exactly, but not just that, but also internally, there's a support for the emperor, and and it's almost like instead of the working class, you know, because they maybe they were feeling that the working class they're not going to really come through with realizing socialism, so it's much better to get do the you know the other way, which is which is you know using the state, right. And so this is where we, you can almost call it a kind of Hegelian gambit. I mean, to put, if you want to put a uh, positive spin on it, I mean, that it's saying, well, the state could realize socialism, you know, and, and, and I think that it's at that time that uh, Miki also starts talking about, uh, you know, a new world order, greater East Asia, coast prosperity sphere and so on, right? So that is where I thought, you know, there, there are some kind of uh, some parallels here. But I think the difference, of course, is that the context is extremely different. I mean, because the Japanese government was very actively involved in colonizing places. And China, it's not, it's not so clear. There's a, little, there's a lot more ambiguity in the Chinese trajectory at this point. With China, the, the current comparison seems to me to actually be to the United States, you know, kind of the late 19th century, very early 20th century, where there are some kind of attempts. It's like American colonialism abroad, but the real push is internal, right? It's a kind of pacification and integration of these internal frontiers, which seems to be the the main focus of the Chinese state now as well. Yeah, so I think I think that's going to be the um, a major challenge for the Chinese case, right? Because the Chinese, um, 
wanted to show, and I, and I think this, in this there is maybe still the parallel with Japan. It's just for, for Japan, it didn't work. But for the Chinese case, what they really have to show is why this is going to be a different order from what already exists. Why, you know, so, so is China just going to replace the United States? Is that, if that's the goal, well, then this whole thing is not that interesting, right? I mean, then it's just, it's just you know, is, do, is, it, is the world better off with China at the center doing the same thing that the U.S. is doing now? Or, or I mean, I mean that it's, it's very hard to answer that question. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be, it, it seems like that's not a win-win, that's a lose-lose, right? You had mentioned uh, another thinker in our discussions, Nishida Kitaro, linked again to the Kyoto School uh, and to the sort of project of creating a Japanese political philosophy that could bring, you know, forward sort of a Japanese vision of modernity. Where in comparison to Miki then is Nishida coming from? How does his project relate? So, so Nishida Kitaro is uh, in some ways Miki's teacher. So, so I think that that, you know, and his his dates are, he also dies in 1945, uh, so 18, 18, he's born in 1870. And uh, there's some who argue that, uh, you know, Nishida was, uh, you know, grew up in kind of the countryside, you know, in um, Kahoku and Ishikawa. And, um, and because of that, he had a kind of, there was a kind of critique of modernity. You know, I mean, there's a question of how far you want to, want to push that. But in any case, uh, he is perhaps the often thought of as the founder of the Kyoto School, uh, you know, definitely one of the most famous philosophers of the Kyoto School. And um, he's someone who I don't think he didn't study abroad, um, but he was in, he had a vi- wide range of influences from people like uh, Hegel and so on, but also someone like William James was very influenced on him. Uh, indeed, one of his most famous concepts is um, the concept of pure experience which he gets sort of from, from, from William James, and that's supposed to be something preconceptual, right? So, there's, there is uh, in all of this a kind of critique of an um, instrumental abstract rationality from the standpoint of something like experience. But where he becomes relevant to our contemporary, our, our present discussion is that he also wrote a quite well-known article um, I think it's later in, his, in the 40s, maybe it was close to his, uh, the time of his death, but it's, it's the principle of a new world order where, where he again talks about you know, how you could have a different new world order and so on. To my recollection, he doesn't write as much about this as Mickey. In fact, the government had commissioned this article. It's sort of interesting that because he was such a famous philosopher by that time and he ends up uh, writing it. And, and, and this is, there's a huge debate about this because there are people who think he's, that this just shows that he's capitulating. There are others saying that, no, 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 what he was trying to do is move the whole co-prosperity sphere ideology in a positive direction, right? And, and the, but then you could, you could make the same case about Mickey, I guess. I mean, so, the, so this is the whole thing is how do you, how do you evaluate these, these thinkers? I mean, because it's a big problem for those of us who are interested in, 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 in say, Japanese philosophy and, and you find this major school, but there are all these people who are somehow connected to the government, right? Well, and it, it seems like what we're seeing here then is, is sort of Nishida. We have the very philosophical phase uh, with Miki. Perhaps it's the translation into something that's more explicitly political. It is interesting to see, right, the, the, the kind of a the idea of a government putting this much emphasis on developing appropriate schools of philosophical thought, right? I think this is something that would be kind of strange, especially in the the American context, right? Like, n- not that the American state is not concerned about ideology, but the way that the American state develops ideology is kind of through media narrative, right? Or, um, you know, it's it, it's propaganda is sort of aimed at it seems to be aimed at the the more cons- consumer or moral narrative, um, social agenda, this kind of thing. Uh, whereas at this point, we're actually seeing state development of philosophical narrative. Yes, definitely in Japan at that time. I mean, Nishida, I think, is one of his is his first book, uh, Zen no Kenkyu, which is the study of the good, which is available in English. It was a bestseller, um, so it was quite a quite a popular book. I'm, I wonder about this of this text about uh, the principle 
of a new world order. I wonder how widely that was read. I think, but you know, at, at one point, um, yeah, a lot of these thinkers wanted to be much more like public intellectuals. In 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 any case, what I would like to do is sketch some of the contours of this project, uh, both the internal and the external ones. I think one place it might be interesting to start is, as we've mentioned here, there's they're drawing on Hegel here on on German Hegelian idealistic thought. Uh, we have a Marxist influence. You know, th- this idea of, of dialectic and multiplicity is is important here. And we mentioned earlier the Chinese model, one country, many systems. There there are these various attempts to kind of create a reconciliation here, right? How can you have a kind of like political unity, uh, even sovereignty that that also has multiplicity, or at least that others can coherently believe can have multiplicity? In the Japanese case, uh, it, it seems to go in kind of a different direction. The role of the Japanese emperor becomes important here. Um, could you maybe talk about like what is the role of the emperor? How do they perceive this person, this institution? Why why do um, Nishida and Miki and the other Japanese thinkers focus so much on the figure of the emperor, even from like this more philosophical level? Yeah, so they have a very interesting, uh, a kind of unique take on the emperor. The, the Kyoto School sort of take on the emperor is almost like taking the emperor to be, uh, they often, because they're somewhat influenced by Buddhism, right? And so, the, so that, that, that the emperor becomes this, the, the seat of nothingness or something like that, right? And so that, that in that, that's why, they, that's why it can, it, the, the emperor can be a kind of unity and multiplicity, right? So there's that, there's that argument that's going on. I mean, there is another, there's another side to this and that, um, that, that some have argued that it is, there, there's also a kind of logic of empire at work here, right? Where that, where empire itself allows for a certain kind of difference. That, that, that might also be what's, what's, what's important here. But, but at some level or the other, there is this problem, the one many problem, uh, is, as it's sometimes called in philosophy, right? How do you unite many into a one, right? While, while keeping the, the identity of the many. So I think at some level, that's what's, what's at stake here. And so, so we have to remember that the, the, originally the co-prosperity sphere idea was really one of about li- the liberation of these Asian nations, right? So basically the places that in the Japanese empire that they were going to were actually places that they're supposed to liberate, right? So they're liberating the Philippines and Burma and Korea and all these places. And and are they perceived? Are they perceived locally uh, at this time as a liberating force? Like, are are we seeing Chinese or Filipino or Indian intellectuals sort of positively viewing Japan as that project starts? Well, so so India is an interesting case, right? Because India was not colonized. So, uh, in fact, I have a I have a student working on uh, this important figure named uh, Rash Bihari Bose who is someone who went to Japan uh, because he was a freedom fighter in India, right? And India, you know, the, the, the British were, were, were persecuting him. So he ended, up, he ended up fleeing to Japan around, you know, something like 1915 or something. More nationalistic figure, more militaristic, correct? Yeah, well, yeah. So he's sort of, uh, yeah, nationalistic, but he becomes a Pan-Asianist in Japan. And he starts hanging out with a lot of these Pan-Asianists, and not so much the Kyoto School, but a person named Okawa Shume, who I also work on, who was a who was a Pan-Asianist, and again someone who was very into like the the propaganda for the uh, Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. And so he is an Indian figure who uh, ends up he ends up you know becoming Japanese. He's actually, uh, as an aside, he's also the founder of Japanese Curry. Um, so if you find, yeah, so because, because he, he was hiding in a, in a, in a, in a sweet shop or restaurant shop, he ends up marrying the, the, uh, the, um, the daughter of that restaurant owner, which in, in any case, he's in the basement. He's not sure what he's in. He makes curry and that's how you have, and you can still go to that shop in, uh, in Tokyo. Uh, it's called Nakamuraya. But, but what's really interesting is he becomes a complete Pan-Asianist and a complete supporter of the Japanese government. But the thing is, what's really interesting about him though is, I mean, and, and, and the other Indian cases, I mean, you can find there's, there are more. I mean, Subhash Chandra Bose is someone else, right? Who's more famous. 
no no relation of course to this this post but but around the same time and because india is never really directly colonized by japan right it's a little bit out of their reach i think uh, and so that 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 imaginary of japan really being a resistor i mean that can really work for uh, intellectuals in china and korea it's a little more complicated because there you might also have collaborators and this is they're called collaborators right but while in in india rashbari bose is maybe more or less i think he's that popular but i don't think people hate him as a collaborator um but but i think here in china you know there're figures who are much more problematic because you know they're 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 seen as collaborating and and, and but then also but but take other places like indonesia right indonesia is sort of interesting because they were colonized by the dutch then when the japanese go in there they're they're first seen as liberators then after a while you know so they think well maybe the japanese are as bad as the dutch you know so it's it's uh it's a it's a complicated uh situation in these places um and so so one really has to say that it's a, it's a mixed bag um that uh and this is why someone else i work on a, a figure named uh, takeuchi yoshimi who, who writes in the post war he calls japanese imperialism it's an imperialism against imperialism and that's why it's it's two-sided right yeah i mean and and you see like i i i i find it interesting again to draw the similarity to america here i i almost think people don't remember this as much now but post like from world war 1 until basically the 50s and 60s right america also takes similarly uh maybe not anti-imperialist might not quite be the way to describe it but you know subtly um preventing intervention with gamal abdul nasser kind of opposing influence of the sort of old monarchic regimes after world war 1 they they kind of play this role of ah we're the ones defending democracy uh in the free world and you know these 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 brits these french you know these europeans there are allies but uh maybe work with us instead right and then from from basically the the early 50s to the early 60s it's it's like a decade long replacement of 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 sort of british global might by american global might yeah so that's an interesting uh, uh point um and i think one what one has to say i mean one really if we put if we put it in the historical context i mean we can't forget wilson in all of this right because it's really you know in some sense wilson starts this whole fuel for for pan asianism um because you know he has all this it's what what you know it's i think it's around it's it's after these uh, the first world war uh, you get the principles of of self determination right and he's and so then then what happens of course with a lot of the pan asianists including and i think uh, rash bihari bose would be part of this uh, is they say well you know the the us is is sort of hypocritical and so if we really want to take these principles you know we're going to have to change them we we're going to have to realize it from from asia and i think the the difference here i think the important difference from with the, with the the japanese position and the and the us position is that the japanese are really writing as part of the anti-imperial resistance uh and so they want to see themselves as completely separate from the allies because they want to say well we were we were the object of imperialism too i mean think about you know commodore perry coming into you know with his black ships and all of that in in you know 1853 right so we are we are so then this of course some people claim is also problematic because they want to continue to do that uh even after world war 2 but you know when they were actually the imperialists but they want to say no 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 but look at us i mean we're we're and we're also the same race that was the other thing right that's why the idea of asia was so important while the western imperialists could never say they're the same race i mean that would not be the the thing they would do right that has to be ideology more so than than these kind of like ethnic ties or or that sort of thing exactly exactly and so what you often had was a kind of civilizing mission or something like that which i think the us still tries to deploy, uh, you know deploy at, at times um while in japan there's something like a civilizing mission but it's not quite that i mean it's 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 part of that but it's also this idea of hey we're the same culture we're the same sometimes they would say we're even the same race right so this is where asia becomes you know problematic because with india can you really say but 
but but at least we're the same culture. There's something uniting us. We're all fighting against imperialism, and and we'll, and and we've got to do it together. Mm-hmm. So I I'd like to um, tackle then what what shifts. So we're we're starting with this this idea of of a co-prosperity sphere we we you know there is an actual kind of pan-asianist intellectual movement there are sympathizers to japan in a number of these countries um what's shifting then to to where we start getting this just sort of out and out colonial project the kind of export of like japanese language um privileging that side uh, over local language and the cultures and places where the Japanese are in power. Is, is it from the start that actually within Japan, the thing is just kind of a vehicle for imperial advancement? Or does something change within the Japanese lens of how they're viewing this? What, what is happening here that switches it? So that's a difficult question. And, and, and this, is, this is one of the, the, the tricky parts of, of doing intellectual history. Because at this point, I've been, you know, talking, when I've talked about pan-nations, I've talked about people who are intellectuals. It's hard to say whether there's something that really shifts with them. They're not building the actual co-prosperity sphere. But, but sometimes they're co-opted into it. I think the, but, but, but there are two things we should think of here. So one is I would say that the ideology or the idea of, of, of pan-Asianism begins much earlier than, than actual Japanese empire. And I wouldn't, I think it would be wrong to say that it was destined from the beginning to only be uh, an imperial project. But I think it is true that the Japanese empire made good use of that, that ideology. And, and some of these intellectuals, someone like, I think Okawa Shume, was, you know, I'm actually um, completing a book on Pan-Asianism, and he's a, a key figure there. And, and He's a really interesting figure because I think he's quite sincere about anti-imperialism and so on. Uh, he's also, you know, someone who was like the, the first translator of the Quran, for example. So his idea of Asia included the, uh, the, the Arab world as well. So, right. Almost Eurasianism. Uh, exactly. Exactly. A very serious figure. But, you know, becomes totally gung-ho about, um, the, you know, the Japanese government and, and the co-prosperity sphere and so on. So I think that when one says, well, what changed? Of course, I mean, it is there, there are changes within the government and the, and the policy um, that happened, you know, say around, you know, after in the Showa period, so probably 1926, after 1926, you get much more. I mean, but by that time, they've already, they've already you know, colonized Korea. Uh, and then, you know, I think as they're empire expands, you get more and more of, a, of, of this kind of co-prosperity sphere idea. But I think the one thing we should, we should qualify about that is that the co-prosperity sphere was a very uh, amorphous idea. Uh, in other words, uh, someone like, you know, people like Tojo Hideki, there's recently a book on this uh, that, that, that by a guy named Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Yellen. And he's called the Greater East Asia Co-Process, which is quite good on this because it, he, he tries, he shows how a lot of people, they didn't even know what the co-prosperity sphere was. You know, I mean, and this is some people like Tojo Hideki. I mean, in, in, in as late as, you know, I think 41, 42. So I think that there, and, and I think that can, to some extent, explain how you could have intellectuals coming in and say, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll go for this. You know, I mean. Yeah, and maybe, maybe, maybe we can turn this into something, something more interesting or something like that. You know, I mean, so I think there is that. Uh, but, you know, one thing that, that you cannot de-emphasize is the way in which this kind of ideology of liberation was used uh, as, as, as part of a kind of imperialist, uh, an imperialist project. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to highlight that part then, right? Like, there are these intellectual projects of world order building that people come up with, but obviously the the political actors that can actually engage in world order building are are generally not intellectuals, even if they they might use intellectuals. They're you know we're looking here at states, we're looking here at economic forces. I I would still say people acting on ideas, and I think the ideas matter, but. Clearly, there there is uh, evolution and change that happens there, and you kind of have to take a, a hard headed analytic view at what what the interests, like what the real goals and visions of of the people engaged in this are. I would I would like to 
take a look here at how the idea of a, a pan-Asian world order was being talked about then. So we had earlier discussed this role that the emperor was given as this kind of, you know, center of society, able to reconcile contradictions. These kind of Japanese uh, thinkers are seeing the, 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 the state as a way to overcome class conflict. They believe that the, the the state and the the imperial state more specifically right like the state almost as extension of the emperor um, is my impression can suspend at least or or can uh, keep contradictions from completely tearing society apart. What what exactly is the vision that they build here uh, of of the world order right like what, how how would they have communicated what the world should look like when the the kind of mission of Japan and and the prosper co prosperity sphere had been completed? Well, so here I think um, here this is another important difference between the Japanese and Chinese cases. I don't think, as far as my reading, there isn't that much about world order in the Japanese case. In, in, and what I mean by that is they mention it and they'll say something about it, but it's not this, it does, they don't go into the same detail. I mean, there is no t- an equivalent of something like Tianxia theory. There is what there is much more discussion of because here, and this is the, the difference is, 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 and I think here that the, the, the material, the actual political context is really important because they're in the process. I mean, they're writing in a, in a time of extreme crisis where they've really got to rally together Asia. So, so there's a lot more writing about Asia and Asian un- unity and, you know, how that could work, right? And so that's... It's more of an Asian order than a world yeah, order. Yeah. And, but, but of course, the Asian order is a prelude to the world order. But, but the world order can only happen once you can overcome imperialism. Um, before you overcome imperialism, what you've got to do is rally the various Asian nations together to 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 fight imperialism, right? So that is that is the 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 argument, right? And that's what you'll find in various people like, you know, Miki Kiyoshi, uh, to you know, uh, Nishida. We have that one principle of world order, and that's where one could go. I mean, uh, to look at well, what would the world order? And it says something. It's fairly vague. It's about how you know each nation is going to keep its particularity while participating in the universal, um, but that doesn't tell you that much. You know, it's not. Um, you know, Tianxia. I mean, I would say Tianxia says something like this, like that as well. But the difference is, I mean, Jiao Tingyang has written maybe at least two or three books on this. And with the Kyoto School, you can find things in in uh, Miki Kyoshi here and there. I mean, you can find a lot on Asia and then there you'll find here and there references to, well, we could have a world order uh, where everybody's, you know, every, you, you have particularity and universality or there's no, there's no one dominating, right? That's the basic idea. The basic idea is really derived from, you know, what happens when you overcome imperialism. There's the ideas, there's no more domination. So I think that the key here is um, in that context, Asia becomes much more important in the Japanese context. It's really Asia and Asian unity, the written. And I think, you know, and if we follow that in the post-war, Asia then turns into something like the third world, but that's it. Right. But so, so does Asia in this case still come under a kind of Japanese uh, stewardship, let's say? I, like, does does the emperor, for example, end up becoming something like an imperial authority that goes beyond Japanese borders, or or is this at least in its you know intellectual form a kind of uh, you know many partners working together? I think one would have to say that it that in in a lot of these there the, the emperor is clearly crucial. You know, I mean, I think, but again, the emperor, you know, the emperor, the, the Kyoto School version would say, but the emperor is really nothingness, right? So. It's the space of absolute nothingness. So, so, you know, there is something, but, but we have to also remember that the emperor is also for the Japanese, a, you know, a seat of community. So, so that's why you could see the emperor imagined as this alternative to capitalism, right? And, and so, so, and this is, goes back to the Meiji Restoration, right? So this is uh, 1868. You have the Meiji Restoration, and there are these two sides to the Meiji Restoration that one usually talks about, right? One side is 
uh, Enlightenment and Civilization, right? Some of you may, you may have heard of this. Uh, and the other is, you know, revere the emperor and expel the barbarian, right? And so, so but, but that revere the emperor and expel the barbarian is really all about, is partly about community, right? Um, because it's, it's that communal part of the, of, the, of the nation state. And this is why a lot of these, these Pan-Asianists really go back to someone like Saigo Takamori, who you might know from the, the movie The Last Samurai, even though there's a, some debate about whether it's really about, about this, uh, this Saigo Takamori. Right. But he was sort of opposing modernization the way that it was being carried out, correct? Exactly. And so this is where the other key part of this is this idea of overcoming modernity, right? So this is where, you know, one of the, there's a, there's a famous round table conference, I think in 1942, where a lot of the Kyoto school philosophers and some other philosophers were, who are sort of interested in um, the contemporary situation, they, they have this conference called Overcoming Modernity, right? An intellectual, he has written an interesting book on this by, named Harry Haratunian. He's got a, a book and he calls it Overcome by Modernity, which is quite an interesting take on it, right? Because what these people are trying to do is overcome modernity, but because they don't completely understand it, they end up being overcome by modernity, right? So, but, but, but in this, you can see why if, you're, if your aim is to overcome modernity, well, then this is why Saigo Takamori, all of this is going to be important. And then, and then you can begin to see the whole war as in some sense, this, this means to overcome uh, modernity. This, by the way, is also very one of the reasons why there was so much support for uh, the war against the United States. Because if you look at it from the Kyoto School perspective, right, you're constantly saying you're criticizing the West, you're criticizing modernity, but but what is the government doing from, you know, the, you know, from the 20s to the 30s? They're invading all these Asian nations and getting into wars there. So when finally uh, you have, you know, a war against the United States, the, 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 a lot of the Japanese intellectuals were really gung-ho about it. In fact, I think um, Shimizu Ikutaro uh, makes the, an intellect, kind of pragmatist intellectual, makes a comment, says it was like, it was like taking a crap after a long bout of constipation. So it's a, so it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's, it's a, you're be, be all, otherwise yeah. uh, you're 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 full of it, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, that that's a yeah, that's an interesting take on it. I would like to kind of start moving to the China discussion. I think just one thing um, in terms of uh, the, the vocabulary we're using here, we've used, talked about this term imperialism um, a few times. Obviously, this is one of these kind of slippery words. People people will use it with very specific but often differing meanings. We could talk about cultural imperialism. You know, the Marxists are going to be talking about primarily kind of economic imperialism. How are the Japanese thinkers we've discussed thinking about this term is it you know they've you mentioned mickey comes from a marxist background is that the lens they're taking do does do they update what they see the essence of empire and imperialism as being what's what's going on there well there's a lot of debate about uh, imperialism um in in japan i mean in fact i think one should note that perhaps um the first systematic account of imperialism is written in Japan. Um, and that is, I think, in 1900 or something by, by an anarchist named Kotoku Shusui. Uh, and this book is also now um, uh, available in, uh, in English. Um, it's called something like The Monster That is Imperialism or something. Um, so, but in any case, uh, then later on, you know, by the time of Miki, uh, then by that time, you're getting another concept of imperialism, but to my knowledge, I don't think, I don't see him using Lenin's concept that clearly, you know? And so I think it is, you know, they clearly connected to the expansion of capital or something like that. And someone like Mickey, Mickey would definitely do that because he's, he's read Marx, but others might just see it as, you know, just the expansion of state power into it. The, as, as the U.S. is doing. Kind of like civilizational conflict take on it instead of a, a sort of economically based one. Yeah, they might have, and they might say, well, yeah, economics is part of it. But, but, but you know, I think you have different, you also have a lot of debates amongst uh, Marxists about this, uh, you know, and you have even some Marxists saying, 
well, some, yeah, I don't know if you want to call them Marxist, but people using Marxist analysis to say why Japan had to be imperialist. Because after all, as Jap- Japanese capital develops, it has to expand. It can't do anything else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're taking control of of the cap the, the machine of capital, the the logic of capital, which which is uh, I mean that is of course the 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 power of having a kind of center that can suspend the contradictions in society, right? Like this is explicitly seems to be how at least some of the the Chinese thinkers, at least that I've looked at, see it as well. The the point of the party state that can suspend those things is that yeah, we can take control of of the logic of capital and industrialization, and we can. And, you know, achieve this like rejuvenation, uh, be- become kind of a free, powerful state that can reshape the world order. But because we have this kind of higher force, higher political force in the society, we won't just kind of get consumed by the whole thing. We can actually kind of mitigate and discipline and control the whole machine. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think there's some of that, uh, some of that, definitely this idea that the state can control capitalism. I mean, to, 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 the, to the extent that, you know, I think, I think, this is um, one of the interesting issues in Marxist theory as well, right? Because I think most Marxist theory has always had trouble dealing with the state. You know, I mean, because the the very traditional Marxist idea was that the state is an instrument of the ruling class, right? So that, but that doesn't seem to work, right? And so then once you start allowing for a certain amount of autonomy, for from the for the state well then you have to say well then the state should be able to come and intervene and then and then transform capitalism or or allow you to have a market that's not capitalist or something like that right and i think i think that was sort of the the ideal i mean so if you think of the ideal of a lot of these people it's really the the combination of of uh, gesellschaft and 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 gemeinschaft right society and community where in, in Gesellschaft, you know, if you're using that Tony's uh, terminology, it's really where you have a lot of inter- individual um, rights and kind of individual, the pursuit of individual interest. But then Gemeinschaft is really the community. And the question has always been, and I think this is a question that remains for us even today. I mean, how do you, how do you bring the two together, right? Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the society of citizens versus society of like particular institutions and ties and and bonds and community and and all of this. Yeah, right. So right. So you have the citizen and but the citizen shouldn't just be an abstract citizen and that's the problem, right? So is the citizen has to be more than just um you know each each citizen doing what they want for their for the for their own benefit. But let me let's let me come back to the question of imperialism here. Um because I think there's something that one needs to deal with um you know not just from the Japanese perspective, but but from a larger perspective, especially if we're going to move into the post-war period. Uh, and that is, how do we think about American imperialism? And here, I, I'd like to mention a book by, um, I think it's uh, Leo Panich and Sam Ginden, I think. No, Global Capitalism and the Making of American Empire. And they want to argue that what American imperialism really is, is making the world safe for global capitalism so that when they're going so so that so that from that perspective american imperialism can go against its own interests at times um which is an interesting idea because if you think about all these ideas of alternative world order you'd think at some level they would have to if if panich and ginden are right what they would have to do is really create a new world order that's different from from the capitalist one. Right. L- let's maybe explain what, what we mean here, because again, I, I think for a lot of people, uh, again, capitalism, it's an, another word where, where people uh, will, will ascribe very particular meanings to the thing. So when you say, uh, you know, th- th- this idea, America is making the world safe for capitalism, what does this mean? You can understand this at a different le- a number of different levels. So at one level, you can think about it as free markets, right? Free markets, private property, right? These are, these are usually what is associated with, with, uh, with, with capitalism. But of course, you can go deeper than that. Uh, and I'm wondering whether in order to get Panitch's point, what, and I don't, but Panitch, I don't think actually goes to, he doesn't use like a strict Marxist concepts such as the value form, right? I mean, he's, he's, I think he's thinking, he's thinking of capitalism largely in terms of markets 
private property, capitalists, you know, wage labor, these kind of things. And he thinks that if you if you look at American foreign policy at that, it's it's you can understand it at that level. I mean, so so you take very early on, you know, the the overthrow of someone like Mossadegh, it was largely because of of the nationalization policies he was trying to trying to implement, right? And and so on. You keep seeing that in various places. And so that's where the you know, and and this in some sense you can make sense of the whole Cold War that way, right? I mean, because there's some who would argue at a deeper level, you know, maybe, you know, R- Russia and Soviet Union, they were, they were in some ways, you know, developing another form of capitalism, right? I mean, that's not, that's not the argument here, right? For Panitch, what he wants to say is that the, the whole Cold War and that kind of, and even beyond it, you can, so you can understand it in terms of creating, you know, the, the ground rules for, um, for global capitalism and sort of now, so here you can also start thinking about international trade, all of these kind of things, right? So, so what that, but I think the interesting point in, in his argument is precisely that it's not, we shouldn't think about imperialism very simply as, okay, this is all for American interest, because it's also, it's, it's much, it goes deeper than that. At some points it is in some sense that in the end, it is sort of for American interest, but it's also for the system, the condition for the possibility of that interest, which is the, the global capitalist uh, system, right? So they're, they're, they're sort of upholding that, right? Um, and so I think that is, that, that I think is an interesting argument. I mean, because if, if, you know, if from that perspective, if you then, and this gets back to what we were saying much earlier, that if you just have another hegemon taking the, over the role of the United States, well, then it's not, it's not really making that much of a change. Yeah, and and it's kind of like what what is the fundamental operating logic of the power that that's sort of coming in from outside, trying to disrupt the world order that currently exists. Like I, you know, to to, to take it out of the modern context, you you go to like an, an older period in history, and you go to Roman expansion, and you know you're you're kind of seeing. Uh, a, a power basically based on like uh, tribute extraction and and to a great degree slave labor, but but also op- you know opening trade routes of various kinds. It's coming in. It's disrupting other societies in you know in in Egypt earlier on in Syria uh, and eventually in other places, and it's it's changing them. It's uh, integrating them into this other you know logic, and and that logic kind of empowers the Roman state. But then it also, you know, it creates a civilization of sorts. Uh, it, it it brings kind of these different elements together that wouldn't otherwise exist. But for for that to continue, the underlying logic kind of also has to continue. And when that system starts to break down, where you know the the military strength and the the kind of internal political coherency of the thing, and you know maybe to a degree even even some of the economic institutions like like the slave system undergoes changes, the the tribute extraction is is undermined. When those priors start to break down, then the overall system is going to start malfunctioning, collapsing, and obviously there we we get eventually uh, a, a Roman decline and and you know then the kind of constituent society sort of fracture off into new systems that that end up developing and kind of uh, a, a new logic ends up filling the vacuum yeah I think I think so that's a that's an interesting analogy I think um, but let, let me let me qualify what I've just said um, is hearing your comments a little bit. Uh, especially um, because this might segue, help us segue a little bit to the, to the Chinese case. You know, when we mentioned Panitch and this whole idea of uh, Panitch and Gindin, uh, this, this whole idea of American empire is uh, making the world safe for global capitalism. So, but, but what we have to realize is unlike the Roman empire, uh, that order is very anarchic. Right. It is, it is one that it's, that's, that is where, that is why the, the, the United States can be at times also hands off, right? It's hands off as long as, doesn't matter what you do inside, as long as you're following the rules of global capitalism, which is why they can support all kinds of people, right? And, and I think that that, that is where Tianxia comes in, 
right? In fact, that is Tian Xia's most convincing, or I would say persuasive selling point. Because what they want to say, what they point out is not just that we have an American world order. The problem is that we would, they would say, and they, we have an American world disorder. And, and so what Tian Xia is, is in some sense, a response to the anarchy of the present world. Uh, and in some sense, it has to be anarchic because that's sort of how capitalism works. It can't be, you know, there's a question of whether the whole thing could work with a world state. But, but the thing is, even with the world state, even though we now have transnational government uh, organizations such as the IMF and so on, what they're really doing, again, is they're, they're playing the role of, of, of American imperialism in the sense to the extent that they're keeping, you know, the conditions for uh, global capitalism. So, and, and, and his, the, his point, of course, is going to be that a lot of the problems that we, we encounter today, um, such as global poverty, you know, the COVID crisis, all of these things are not things that can be dealt with at the level of the nation state. And so, therefore, you need a, a, a world order. So, that, so, this would be, so this is where it's going to be what they're envisioning is something very different. Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.